How many here have heard of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach? Everybody's heard of him, right? He was born into a musical family. A family of the Bachs back in uh, 1685. By the age of 10, both of his parents were dead. And uh, he had quite the friction in his early life. And uh, he determined that he would write music during uh, the rest of his life. And it was all going to be for the glory of God. Everything. And this he did. Most of Bach's works, I think, are uh, definitely, explicitly biblical. Uh, Everything in his songs have deep doctrine in them. And even Albert Schweitzer, of all people, referred to him as the fifth evangelist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Johann Sebastian Bach. (laughs) Um, That's because the gospel was always in his songs. When he was 17 years old, he became the organist at the church, and soon he was given the change, uh, really, of charge uh, of the entire ministry there at the church. And during his ministry there in Germany, he wrote a new cantata every month. Now, that's a cantata. That's that's just laying out a whole new uh, program uh, of songs and it flows together. did that every month. And then, for a three-year period, he wrote, conducted, orchestrated, and performed with his musicians and singers and choirs and did a new cantata every week. Every week for three years he did that. That's incredible. No one had any idea what kind of a mark that would make on the rest of the world. What kind of legacy did he leave? Of course, you think of classical music. Whether you listen to much of it or not, you have to admire this um, Johann Bach. At the beginning of every music piece that he did, you will find the letters J.J. What does J.J. stand for? Yesu Yava, or Jesus Java. Jesus help me. Jesus help me. Before every manuscript that he wrote. And at the end of every manuscript that he wrote, you will find the letters S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. For God alone. To God be the glory, right? So Bach is a reminder, I believe, that one who gives his life to Christ and serves Him, he didn't count it a loss. I mean, he poured his whole life into this. This is hard work that that he did. Mark 8.35, it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's one of those that sounds opposite, right? But um, that's Bach. He gave his whole life in uh, what that uh, he did. How do you get your focus of your life in that way? How do you do that? How can you live a, a, a bold, courageous, um, a kind of unashamed life? How can you do that? Not being ashamed of Christ. Isn't that what it's about? And of course our title today is that. Not ashamed of the gospel. Three times from verses 6 through 18 today in our text that we're going to be using, you will see not being ashamed of Christ. And that's the theme. That's the theme that we're going to hit on in our verses 6 through 9 in 2 Timothy 1. Now what you want to do is kind of remember what we went over last week. We just started this new epistle. And at the time of this writing that Paul is doing, as he writes a letter, that's what an epistle is, it's a letter, he writes a letter to Timothy while he's in a dungeon, he's in a pit, a literal pit. And usually most of the ones, the criminals that went in that pit would uh, be drowned by the sewer that they would let in. Um, We know that his head was chopped off, his body... But he had spent time in this dark, stinking, unhealthy place with criminals. And he's a saint of God and not a criminal. And how could he be divorced from these circumstances? It didn't seem to really bother him 
because he knew that he was serving the Lord in all that he did. He was not ashamed of this gospel they had, regardless of where he was at, the most humiliating place you could be. The ministry has to go on. He knows he's going to die. It's going to be a very short while now. And Timothy is the one that's going to have to take this torch, going to have to take the baton and carry it on with all that Paul had done. Now, Timothy is the one to carry this on. He's going to need this epistle written to him to strengthen him, isn't he? Timothy's going to need a lot of that. And so Paul was going to be gone. He's going to have the burden to take this over. When we find some things about Timothy in this epistle, there's also a statement in 1 Corinthians 16.10 tells us a little bit about him. He says, Now if Timothy comes to Corinth, see that he's with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work. So Timothy could be a little timid. That's easy to remember, isn't it? He would have a little bit of fear. He's saying, when he comes to you, make sure that he's not afraid. You know, welcome him and bring him in. Uh, he tends to be fearful. He's perhaps by nature a timid person. And this kind of stress that's on him, especially at Ephesus, as he has a tremendous responsibility at Ephesus, he's just a man, just like Paul is just a man. But the things that they went through, and we know the Romans have unleashed a unleashed a persecution uh, worldwide that's against the church. And they're out hunting heads uh, for some of the leaders and just church people. And uh, Paul is in prison because of that. Timothy has to realize that he too could be in prison if he does the same thing that Paul does. Guess where he could wind up at? It could cost him his life. And uh, there's a wholesale persecution that's going on. And Paul has a heart that's burdened for Timothy and the rest of the church while he's in that prison getting ready to get his head chopped off. And there it is, he really has a concern for others. That's incredible, isn't it? That's the way it is with people who are sold out for the Lord. Timothy is vital in going with this kingdom gospel that's being offered. He is vital to keep this um, heavy in the minds of all the, uh, not only the church, but uh, the, the lost out there. So the basic structure of this epistle is really, it's an exhortation exhorting Timothy to be strong, to be courageous while he naturally is timid and he's been motivated by the first five verses Paul mentions that you know this is all by the will of God and it's the promise of life in Christ and he says Timothy you're my beloved son and uh, then he mentions the grace and the mercy and peace and uh, he says I, I remember you night and day constantly in my prayers and look at the background that you had uh, being taught by your mother and your grandmother, and uh, here you are where you're at now, where the Lord has brought you. You want to have this attitude of not being ashamed of Christ. So the text is this. It's really three points today. Because you are saved, you must serve. It's all about serving. If you're saved, then you have to serve. And he'll mention uh, that in verse 6 and 7. Then when you serve, then now you just might suffer because of that. And he mentions that in our verse 8, not being ashamed. And then in verse 9, when you suffer, remember your salvation. Remember who saved you and who's in charge of all this, our sovereign God. Let's pray as we get ready to read over. Father, help us understand Your Word today. Help us to be better servants. Better servants as we suffer. And above all, help us to remember where our salvation came from. For that should be the greatest motivation of all. The salvation by grace. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Short amount of verses today here, 6 through 9. 
For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Amen? You can be seated. Now that, that verse 9, I can't wait to get to there. And I spend so much time on the first verse, by the time we get to the last verse, I have to go sh- shooting by. Start from the back. <laughs> Start from the back. That's good. <laughs> That's a good idea. Okay. A farmer had a team of horses, in which one horse consistently worked hard, worked even harder than any of the others. And the farmer said, They're all willing horses. The one is willing to pull, and the rest are willing to let him. <laughs> Sadly, that's often a description of um, the church worldwide, the local church. In fact, what pastors often refer to what they call the 80-20 rule. That means 20% of the church members do 80% of the work, of the service. And he really intended not that to be that way. He intended how much percentage? 100%. Now, there are reasons that people don't serve. Here are some of the ones that I I think we could probably all um, see and and tell about. Um, Some don't serve because of their commitment to Christ and His church is actually (laughs) half-hearted. They they attend church occasionally, sometimes they're there, sometimes not. Their real interests are really in the world. That's really what, what they're about. And sometimes serving would be just an inconvenience for them. Now, that's, that's one kind. Others have tried serving, actually have done it, but they lacked maybe some kind of training or they just grew frustrated because, you know, sometimes it, it's, this can be hard and, and not really knowing what's going on. Uh, some quit because other church members will criticize them because they've done something in there and, and uh, that uh, maybe they thought was good and the other people didn't and so they get criticized. Others burn out because they just do too much. And then some just quit because they had the wrong motive all the way through. A wrong motive. I think that can be very easily discerned how that can happen too. So they were looking for commendation from people. They want to get the commendation from the people and really we're not here. We really serve the people, but we're really serving God. And uh, for whatever reason, many Christians we know can grow weary Quite a hassle it is to serve the Lord. It can be inconvenient and we can retreat to a more comfortable zone. And therefore, that's all we do. We're just kind of around but don't do anything. So it seems like Timothy has to be refreshed here because not that he wasn't serving at all at the church where he is at, but that he could have gotten to that point. And he could have seen all that was going on and and, uh, all the... uh, Persecution, all the difficulties and circumstances. He has um, a tendency to retreat. Maybe he's rather shy. Maybe he's rather timid. Uh, We know in 1 Timothy 5, um, he's not in the best of health. Stomach. Um, He's maybe kind of unsure, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.12, when difficult issues require the leadership and he needed to step up. And uh, once Paul had to write to the Corinthians about that. Of course, we were talking about him being uh, afraid. So 2 Timothy 1, 6-9, Paul encourages Timothy, keep on doing it. Keep serving the Lord. Don't give up. Alright? You do it with all the strength that God has given you. 
You're going to have opposition. You already have the opposition. Because you are saved, you must serve. And because you serve, you will suffer, Timothy. And when you suffer, just remember who saved you for eternity. From eternity. Past. All the way back before we were here. And so we remember who it's all about, right? So the 6 and 7 reads, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He's saved to serve. For this reason I remind you. He starts off with. For this reason I remind you. Why does he remind him? Why does he say this? Why why does he come off with this in verse 6? Well, that I know that you have a sincere faith. And I know that you had a mother and a grandmother who taught you the things even when you were a child. And then they led him to Christ. And then Paul came along and then Timothy went with him. And so here we have Paul saying, for for that reason, I'm reminding you, because of your roots that God has given, to kindle afresh the gift of God. Kindle. It's dealing with fire, isn't it? To kindle afresh. Dealing with uh, having a fire going and then keeping it going. Of course, if you have all the coals together and you've got a fire going, it'll just keep on going. If you keep on adding on it, the fire will keep on going. But if you get down to one coal and there are no other coals around, it's by itself, it'll eventually burn out and that's it. That's, of course, that kind of reminds you of other servants and other Christians and being around other Christians to keep that fire going. We need that. But... Here it's talking about his gift to keep that going. I think Timothy is cooling off to an extent here. He's seeing the way that it is in Christianity. And yeah, it is hard. But it's the best kind of hard that you would want because it's um, definitely, I think, the most exciting thing you can be involved with. Uh, It's easy to drift into an apathy. Just being apathetic about things, it's easy to drift into those kind of things. We... No, we've done that. The world presses in. You know, the the pressures catch up with us, and we find ourselves uh, really having less time spending the time that we need to have with the Lord. Not spending the time with Him, we'll find that happening, and that's called growing cold. Because once we grow cold to Christ, we grow uh, cold to, cold to everything. And so this is in the sense, and in the tense here of keeping that fire alive, keep it blazing hot. And of course, that's taking God's Word and seeking out Christ and Him working through you. Uh, You're in this world, Timothy. You've been given the gift and you do it. You use it. You keep that thing going, what He's given you. So kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of My hands. He's, it was not something magical because Paul had a touch and boom, he put the apostolic touch on him and boom, just something magically happened. But he's identifying with this young evangelist, this young pastor. And so whenever he was like, he, whenever he was ordained, and of course in ordination services, they do that today. They will lay their hands on them. And uh, Penny, I think we still have that picture. When we had the ordination, you guys ordained me uh, back at the old building. And uh, Carl was there. Penny and Carl took charge of that. And uh, so we wanted to do something officially. They, they put that together. We have a picture back there in the office. And I'm, I'm going back there and I said, wow, I was a young guy back there. I had hair. <laughs> But actually, you know, that was just saying, hey, they're identifying with what uh, everybody was uh, being a part of and taking in that. So that's the idea. And there might have been something before all those people that maybe that gift was was given him right right there. Uh, but he, he's reminding, hey, don't you remember when you were ordained and uh, people saw this, that this gift of God uh, was was there. And uh, so Paul knows he has that gift. He reminds him. Uh, he says, you remember when you received it. And matter of fact, I think in another uh, passage in, um, uh, in Timothy, the whole presbytery was there, the elders and the congregation... 
and he was receiving this gift and it was verbalized through a, a prophecy, uh, a preaching, uh, a, a teaching that came from God. Having the church uh, or uh, the Apostle Paul and others lay their hands on him, confirming his commission, showing that he was real. So it's good to be reminded of who you are and uh, where God has put you. And I think that was a tremendous responsibility that happened uh, to Timothy here and, and to fulfill. He's obligated to God and he's obligated to his church. He's obligated to Paul. He's obligated to God. He's obligated to the church to serve, to accomplish that. When you have a gift, and we know we all have gifts. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift that nobody else has that's just like it. You're obligated to me to use that gift. You're obligated to everybody in this church to use that gift. You're obligated to even the lost to give them the gospel. You know, in however way that God has designed for you to deliver it. And he says in um, in verse 6, the gift of God. Matter of fact, we just don't pick our gifts, do we? I want that one. Oh, that would be a mess if that turned out to be. Everybody want to be the same thing or whatever, right? But he has given us. <laughs> yeah, that would be a gift. But, yeah, yeah we'll, we will be uh, going so fast we will not be able to even know what happens. God's main gift to every believer is the indwelling Holy Spirit that you have in you. That's the main gift that we have. And of course, in Acts one eight, He gave them a promise, uh, you know, to uh, that they would be in Jerusalem, that they are to wait there, and I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And that was the birth of the church, and to everybody that comes into the church, that happens. Um, and so we are to depend on the, the Holy Spirit. I think a Galat- uh, no, go to First Corinthians twelve thirteen. Um, this is the a list of gifts to the body of Christ. Verse thirteen: For by one Spirit, one Spirit, Holy Spirit, we were all baptized, placed into, immersed into one body. Whether you're Jew or Greek or whether you're a slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So when you became a Christian, you were placed in to the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we were baptized into the Spirit. And so that's not some kind of strange thing floating out here. What's that? Baptized in the Spirit. It means that the Holy Spirit baptized us, immersed us into... the. the matter of fact, what is that? Uh, he, um, it's an immersion placed into the body of Christ. And it was the Holy Spirit who did that. And so isn't that nice to know? That you were placed into that just like the Apostle Paul was, or anybody else was, that uh, that became Christian. And we know that when we studied Galatians, uh, we were in chapter five for a long time. The fruit of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit lives in you, when you're baptized into the body of Christ, also the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in you, and now you have the fruit of the Spirit. Not only gifts of the Holy Spirit happen, but the fruit of the Spirit, and that's how we live our Christian lives, with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness on forth there, right? It's all because of um, Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's an amazing thing. It, it still goes beyond my thoughts how that can be. How God, the Holy Spirit is God, can live in me. And I live in Him. The Holy Spirit also imparts the gifts. He's the one that does it. And you can take... Here's what happens to each one of us. God takes His palette of colors, many colors, or the three primary colors, if you will, and takes out of that, does His artistry, takes His brush, takes a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, puts it up there, and level, you have... Somebody who's been gifted like nobody else. Every one of them are uh, unique, individual. And that's what he wants it to, what you to be. So he takes that combination of particular kind of gifts and it's how you operate in the body. Nobody else does. You're gifted. 
If I know God has said you are to do this and I gift you to do that, then I want to do it. That's a motivational drive that we have within us. I mean, I now realize why we have a motivational drive within us to do a certain gift. You don't even know. You say, I don't even know what it is that I do. But you do it. You know? You might know what it is you do. Or then again, you you might have such a blend and unique, but you have a drive inwardly to do that. It's something that you enjoy doing. And at the same time, it's something that you are actually empowered to do. And you can say, well, nobody else is doing that. Yeah. It's because it's yours. The eye and the hand and the foot. There you go. All the individual parts of the body. You can say, yeah, but... Everybody else should be doing that. But they're actually over here doing this. You know? Uh, sometimes we might all need a little bit of help or something like that and then say, hey, uh, matter of fact, can I, can I have some help? Matter of fact, I did this this morning. We did that. The band asked for help with the vocals. Isn't it amazing how God can just fill in? And so... It happened. I, I needed help with, the, with these vocals, and Bob needed help with those vocals. And Bob's playing bass, and he's playing keyboards at the same time. And then if he's on the keys, he might be playing bass there. He might switch to the bass guitar. And um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that's a spiritual gift. That's a talent. It, it is a gift in a, in one sense, but there's another sense in there. The the uniqueness now of the the gift of of serving in that is used with that particular element that you do well or that you like to do. And so you take God's gift and you put it in with the the other kind of other kind of gift or something that you just normally like to do anyway, you put those together, God can bless that. Now, just because somebody can do really well things out in the world, it's like sometimes people see somebody being uh, an administrator of a city, uh, a mayor or whatever, and they come into the church and boom, they plop them right into um, a high position in the church because they have a leadership ability. But they may not have that gift in the church. There might be something else that they do that they have spiritually. Sometimes the two do go together. But uh, you know that's the uniqueness of it all. But just because somebody does something out there well in something doesn't always mean that that converts into the church, although it, it certainly can. And it uh, does much of the time. But uh, we, we are all gifted. And I, I think of Romans 12. You think of 1 Corinthians 12. I think of Romans 12. I think of Ephesians 4. Those are always great chapters to um, refer to. Um, Romans 12 says... In verse 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment of God as allotted to each a measure of faith. A measure of faith. Each one has been allotted that. Faith in itself is a gift, isn't it? Uh, matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says that. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Whatever gift you have, just do it. Nike, right? Just do it. Whatever you say, I don't know what it is. You know, you know, he can teach. Or this guy over here, you know, he does he does administration. This person does that, or this person really encourages. And I don't know what I do. He say, Well, I know what you do, and it doesn't really matter. Here's what you've been given, and even if you can't define it, you're just doing it. You, know, you, you just do what God has given you. And so he says, exercise them accordingly. Use them. If prophecy, preaching, according to the proportion of his faith. If service. Serve. Or he who teaches, teach. Or he who exhorts, exhort. One who gives with liberality, give. You lead with diligence. You show mercy. You show mercy with cheerfulness. Some people can show mercy and not be cheerful about it. No, mercy with cheerfulness that you're desiring to do this. You love to do it because God has equipped me with this. This is what I do. So those are just a few. 
And so they're not all listed because it's impossible. But you can take three primary colors and you can make all the colors of the rainbow, right? And that's what God does. That's what He does. And we can go around saying, I want this gift. And that's not what God has given you. Maybe it's something else, right? Anyway, He imparts those gifts to that to us. And First Peter mentions them in First Peter 4.10. So we've seen some passages that deal with that. And to know that it's the gift of God, another thing about that is He sovereignly, and we've been talking about that, He sovereignly gives these to us. We never seek a gift. He gives them to us. Do you, have you ever gone out seeking a gift from somebody? <laughs> Wouldn't be, huh? <laughs> Can you give me this? It's no longer a gift, is it? God gives every believer the gift that is perfectly made for you and He sovereignly does it. That is amazing. He knows exactly what each one of us needs. And of course, it's, we focus on the gift of God's grace, don't we? Grace is all about that. And um, I've got a passage here. I'm going to look up just for a moment. I'm trying to think of what this, this Scripture is. It's out of Corinthians. And... 1 Corinthians 4.7 says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Don't you like that? What do you have? I mean, anything. Think of just physical things. Spiritual things. Mental things. uh, This body of Christ. uh, You know, just your house, your car, everything. What did you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if you had not received it? Exercising the gifts, okay? Timothy, I want you to exercise that gift. He says, to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you. Exercise the gifts. Timothy, God did not give you gifts and equip you with all that you have with cowardice, with timidity. Do you understand that, Timothy? (laughs) And we'll start with the word timidity. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Or some of you might have fear. A spirit of fear, maybe. Timidity. Timidity means fear. Coward. Uh, Embarrassed. Ashamed. I think that really hits with our text today. I think it was kind of ashamed of Paul. Where he was at. Timothy was not naturally bold, I think, if you look at some of the other texts. I think he shied away whenever there was conflict, whenever there was confrontation that needed to be done. And I want to tell you, we are in spiritual warfare. And that pretty well sums up why sometimes things happen and you can't figure it out. And it's okay if you can't figure it out because sometimes you won't. I won't. Nobody will. God is. Sometimes you can figure it out. Sometimes you you can at least say this. I'll tell you what. They're having a battle with the enemy. And they are getting drugged all over the place by the enemy. I think I'll pray for them. Because they are in warfare and they are getting shot at and they don't know it. Warfare. Spiritual warfare. You don't win wars by being passive or cowardly, do you? When America used to win wars... When they used to win wars, they were not cowards. We had to go into battle for many reasons. America was not passive, was not cowardly. And this nation came about with people who were people of God who wanted to worship God. They were not cowards. They were willing to give up their lives. And those pilgrims and Puritans that came over here, we know what happened to many of them. They died within that first year, first few months. Opposition. Just natural opposition. Timidity. God has not given us a spirit of fear. There's no reason to fear. The only kind of fear we're supposed to have is what? The fear of God. Just Him. And that's a good thing. Because it all deals with relationship and knowing who He is and who I am. Next word is power. That's kind of the opposite of timidity, isn't it? He's not given us fear.
spear. He's given us power. I mean real resurrection, Holy Spirit power from the Holy Word of God. The authoritative Word of God. We come under God's power. You know what? Power means to control. In the spiritual sense, it's the power to control our sin. That's power. To heal. And so we can help even others with that kind of power. So they can get control. Well, the word is dunamis. You guys are familiar with that. How many times do we run into dunamis throughout the New Testament? Paul used it frequently. And uh, you can think of dynamite or dynamic. That's, that's the idea. That's, that's the kind of power we're talking about. A dynamic energy being produced by the very Spirit of God and the Word of God. So the power of God is there to be produced in us. We don't have the natural power of the world. We have the power of God underneath our hood. Whenever we need to rev up that motor and make it go, we don't sit in the garage with the garage door shut, do we? No, we get that thing out and we move it and we use His power. You have that power. Look in Ephesians 1.18. I've used this many times, but this is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. This is what I like to pray for you guys throughout the week. And Paul prayed for the Ephesians in this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now remember the song that we started off, or one second song that we did? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may see you, that I may be enlightened, right? That's kind of comes from there. That you may know what is the hope of His calling. Some people say, I don't know what His calling is. Well, we want you to know what the hope of His calling The great hope that you have. What are the riches of the glory? Not just talk about glory. We're talking about the riches of His glory, that it comes closer and closer. Of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of His what power? It, it, it goes way beyond anything that we can ever even think of. That's the kind of power that you have here within you. The riches of His power. The riches, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us. Resurrection power, ascension power, supernatural power, power over death, power over natural forces. That's the power that's given to us. Power over spiritual forces in heavenly places, in wicked places. Wow. Power, that's the power of God, isn't it? Holy Spirit power. That's power. That's a tremendous thing to realize. Realize that. To see the power of God operate that comes in, changes lives, moves the kingdom, exalts the Lord. That's the kind of power. You have that power. You have it. So, next circumstance comes along, you can deal with it. Because you have the power. I'm just not doing motivational speeches here though, am I? This this is actually this is fact. I mean this this is what God has said. It's it's not me, I'm just taking the scripture and we're trying to amplify this in, in our thoughts, but uh, what's the next one? You don't have timidity, you don't have you're not to have fear, but you're to have power and love. And love deals with not yourself. Although that's what the world says, love yourself. Love yourself. No, the Bible says give yourself away. It says die to self. Forget yourself. Deny yourself. Take up the cross, right? That's love when you have love for others. You have a deposit of love that comes from God. Romans 5 says that He has dispersed His love and it's just abounding tremendously on you. You can't exhaust the love of God that comes into you. And so Jesus says, I give my life away to serve you. I give my life as a ransom for the many so that I can serve you. The Holy Spirit comes in, deposits the love of God. It permeates us. 
So that love, we, we, uh, we live it. We eat it. We breathe it. Uh, it's the love of God. And it just pours out from us. Matter of fact, someone has said that love balances that power. Because we could abuse power, can't we? And most often, we will tend to do that because we are people who are battling pride. Pride is really uh, uh, ourselves. That's where our enemy is at the worst. Our pride. Now, love is opposed to fear. I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but I gave you the spirit of love. I give, I give you love. It's opposed to fear. Fear stems from self-love or self-protection. We have to protect ourselves. It's all about self. It's all about me, isn't it? It's all about me. Now, Bob just left. Now, if I said it now, it wouldn't be fair, but there was a show that used to be... Honestly, it's all... No. <laughs> there he is. No, you were supposed to be here on that one because then you would know that I really wasn't talking about you. Talking about, no. <laughs> it's all about Bob. <laughs> who, who started that movie? Who was it? Bill Murray. Bill Murray. <laughs> Throw that humor back out there. You know, Bob knows I'm kidding. Self-protection, right? We exist. This seems sometimes to protect ourselves. And oh, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. Oh, I'm not going to do that again because I saw what happened. And hey, I'm smart. I'm going to protect myself here. <laughs> Too bad. That's selfish. That's what we have to die to. I've been burnt before and I'm not going to let it happen again. No, no. Self-sacrifice. Do you know any idea what love is? We're just learning. Man, we're just learning, aren't we? Just keep giving yourself up. Don't quit. Don't go somewhere else. You have people who love you. You love them. Okay? This is where God has put you. Practice that love amongst His people who want to love you. When you love others, you will get a boldness to overcome the fears because now you're giving yourself up, your own selfish person up to die for another, to help another, to serve another. Get rid of yourself and you will no longer have the fear. Do you see how that comes into play when he says, God's given us a spirit of fear. He's given us love. And love is self-sacrifice. It's all about being bold for others in the person of Christ. What's the last one? Discipline. Or sound mind. Sophrosnismos. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's related to another word, but it's the means of controlling oneself in the face of pain let's say it's ultimate self-control in the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness self-control sound thinking a sound mind it's a fruit of the spirit it's related to that what it is is a sound mind controls your life so that you don't react in a sinful, emotional outburst. When you have self-control, your emotions will want to go sky high, go right up the thermometer like the heat has been turned on. And all of a sudden, the emotions just burst out of you. And this sound mind, this discipline says, No. I'm not going to let it control me because that's an impulse of the flesh. I recognize this because I've dealt with this many times and I haven't done too well with it. But I have a Holy Spirit. And God has given, given, has given me this spirit of discipline, a sound mind. Use the God-given gifts that we have in a sensible, controlled manner in line with God's purposes. 
in every situation. Wow, Timothy. That's what it is. You have power. You have love. You have sound mind. God has given this to us. Now that's part one. We did verse 6 and 7. Point number two, verse 8. When you serve, you might suffer. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Because of what we just talked about. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or to make it a little bit more understandable, or of me. Jesus' prisoner. <laughs> Is that becoming clear there? Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's some testimony of our Lord. Yeah, He, he died on the cross. He, look at the suffering that He went through. Look at what Paul's going through. Boy, this must have hit right at Timothy right in the first part of the letter. Paul just comes in with some motivation and everything. Now he says, okay, here's, here's the deal. Here, here, here's what, what happens. Uh, after an extensive tour of the United States, there's this well-known German pastor. His name is Helmut Felick. And does that sound German? Helmut? He was asked what he saw as the greatest effect in the American Christian. You know what he said? They have an inadequate view of suffering. Oh, thank you, Helmut. The Baptist missionary to Burma, a guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. There's a hero of the faith. There were times when he sure didn't look it. I um, heard his uh, John Piper's biography. Uh, I think it was back in 2006. We went up to Minneapolis. Took in a John Piper message. Dealt with Adoniram Judson. Heard the name before, didn't have any clue who he was. I heard that story. Boy, that was powerful. If you ever get a chance to read about Adoniram Judson, J-U-D-S-O-N, do it. Yeah, yeah, he he lost family. and he, He even got to the point where he even, I guess you could say, he lost his faith. And he was... He was laying by the graveside just waiting to die where he could just, hopefully, just somebody roll him in. (laughs) Story and a half. I don't have the time to do it. I look at my watch and I wasn't even going to do it, but I'll give you some quotes here. Piper said this, More and more I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of His purposes includes the suffering of His ministers and missionaries. To put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of His ministers and missionaries is one essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the Gospel among all the peoples of the world. Piper goes on soberly to say that we're faithful if we're faithful to God's command to take the gospel to the remaining unreached peoples, this sounds like Piper, doesn't it? Some of us and some of our children will be killed in the process. But this is clearly God's peoples. And it's clearly God's design. As the Bible and church history repeatedly demonstrate, You look down through history and you will see that. You look through the Scripture, you will see this. In fact, God has even predetermined a specific number of martyrs. I say, Dennis, where in the world do you get that? Are you saying that God predetermines that people be martyred, His own people? Would He do that? Well, first of all, we know that God has numbered our days. It says in Scripture when we were to come on this earth and when we were to die, God was going to be part of that. Actually, if you really wanted to get downright to it, He kills us. He has us born, He kills us. What, what would happen if He didn't take us out and we lived the rest of eternity here on earth the way that we are? Oh, God, no. <laughs> you guys are saying what the Scriptures say. <laughs> not my home. It's nice to live here. It's great to be able to serve here. And God has us here for the time being. But, you know, uh, He prepares us for glory. There's something much better. And these bodies do die out. And it's because of sin. It's a result of sin of mankind. A result of Adam. Blame it on Adam. Okay. 
All right, I want you to look in Revelation 6 through 10 and 11. And I've read this before, but I found this very fascinating as I kind of poured over it. This is the cry of the martyrs. I think last um, Tuesday night we might have said something about this because I'd just been reading this. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? When are you going to judge those evil people? And God does. And, and we cry out to that today too. It's called a righteous indignation. Lord, how long are you going to let them get away with this, the, the homosexuality? How, how long are you going to let them get away with this uh, kind of marriage that they're having amongst the, the, their own same-sex marriage? And so, God, the abortion, how long are you going to let this get away? And we should have that cry. We really should. God, do something about this. And He is, but He will ultimately do it. Now, here, here's our verse, though. Look. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Rest for a little while longer until the number are killed. God has that plan from death to birth, all through our life. He is sovereign. He works in our lives. Yes, we are to be obedient, but eventually He's going to take us out. And that's really what it comes down to. He allows something to happen. But it's all in His grand plan. But it's much better than what we think. It sounds like the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody. But it's really not. Because He has to take us. Yes, we have to have new bodies and such too. So that's all part of the plan. You can get a different way of looking at it. But you know, Paul's in his final imprisonment. And he knows that it, this is looks like in God's will now that uh, his ministry be finished. He, he's a person. He's a man. He has to die. And now he has to give it to Timothy who by nature is kind of timid. And, you know, he'd wanted, uh, he wanted to follow Paul, but... He, my, the imprisonment, the martyrdom. Put yourself in Timothy's shoes. I'll be honest with you. I'm going, oh, do I? <laughs> I've, I've never been there. I've never really experienced that kind of um, persecution. Uh, not even close. I can't compare at all. I really can't. Martyrdom. And I'll tell you, that doesn't really sound like a fun future, does it? Does that sound like fun? I'm sure Paul is not really enjoying, you know, in the flesh what's happening. Oh, give me another one. Give me another lash. Come on, do it, you know. No. But I'm sure Timothy's, oh, man, I'd like to have a more safe and comfortable life. You know what? Um, Maybe. Just maybe uh, maybe I ought to look for some other different kind of uh, lifestyle. You know what's happening? We'd much rather have a pleasant line of place to be. Paul's saying, don't be ashamed of the Gospel, no matter what circumstance you're in. And Paul says that he's a prison. Don't you be ashamed of me. Evidently, he was ashamed of his chains. Paul being in prison, and he's always being in prison, and people are saying, what kind of work are you into there, Timothy? Doesn't look like there's much of a future there. Well, there's an eternal future. Look at the possibilities that he has to bring people the good news of the gospel. That's really what this is about. That's why we're here, isn't it? Ultimately, to praise God, and then what? To take the gospel out to the lost. He's referring that uh, Paul didn't even consider himself a prisoner of Rome. You know, he just doesn't say that here in this Timothy passage. I think this is remarkable. In verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be the testimony of, of me, his prisoner. I'm the prisoner of Jesus. I'm his bond slave. I'm the prisoner. Here, yeah, I'm in this hole. But you know what? I'm not held captive to that. I'm a prisoner of Christ, serving Christ. That's the kind of joy. You can take that joy when you know who you really serve. You know what? Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Every chapter in this epistle mentions this. Join with me in your suffering. He says, don't be ashamed, Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me. 
Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to join with me in the suffering for the gospel. Dennis? Dennis. Dennis. That can't be in the Bible. You're taking your own notes here. I'm just relaying the message. Don't shoot the messenger. I know. This is why people go to other churches. Because Dennis talks about suffering. Yeah, and I also talk about glory and joy and what it's about. I can't skip the verse. I'd like to skip the verse. But I can't. Join with me, Timothy, in suffering for the gospel. Paul, that's Paul. Paul is just—he's so mad, and he's down in that, you know, in that hole that he's just saying, "Hey, come on and join me, buddy. You know, you take it too." No, it's all out of out of love that he's writing this letter. And by the way, when you suffer, it's according to the power of God. Oh, that kind of balances it, doesn't it? This is how you're able to get through this. It's the power of God. We're in a life that is a war. Uh, It is a battlefield. And we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And here we get to the best part. Endure the shame of the cross, Timothy. Now we go to number three. And I told you we would be down in the very last few minutes when we hit this. But it's something that we hit on quite frequently here and it's called the sovereign grace of God. This is a mini doctrine of salvation found in one verse. The God who can save you is the God who can hold you. Let's read it. This is one of the greatest verses that you can use on somebody that is not convinced of sovereign grace and you're saved by God's grace. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, and that even takes our own thinking, our own ideas. It's not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. And grace. Grace. God's grace. Grace is greater than all of sin. Which was granted us in Christ Jesus, not when we said, I think I'll follow Jesus now. <laughs> it all started from eternity. Sure, in time and space, you said yes to Christ. But this was God's plan that you would do it, that He predetermined this, that He loved you before you were here. Many other Scriptures to deal with that. But I want to tell you, it's it's a Holy Spirit regeneration in John 3. Talking about being born again, there's no way that the uh, a man, and he was the elite of all the thinkers probably in Israel at that time by the name of Nicodemus, part of the Sanhedrin, one of the great uh, rulers at that time that they would have considered, and he couldn't understand the new birth because nobody can until you're regenerated. John 6, verse 44. How often I love to use this section. It's all over the Gospel of John about sovereign grace. The doctrines of grace. Those things we hold so dear to us John 6.44 you know just remember verse 37 all that the Father gives me will come to me that's a guarantee John said this because he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out drop down to verse 44 for time's sake no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if he draws him, I will raise him up on the last day. That means there will be a resurrection. And he says, the ones who come to me, who are they? The ones that have been drawn by the Father. Wow. This is all about God, isn't it? Oh, he says, just in case the suffering gets a little bit too much for you, Timothy, I want you to remember this. You have a sovereign God who called you, chose you, called you with a holy calling, 
anybody questions the source of salvation, this ought to end the question. Just the Second Timothy one nine. I mean, who can debate that? And then you think of Romans eight and Holy Spirit who's living in us, and we're waiting for Christ to come back. And then Romans nine, where we see the sovereign will of God and the Potter and the clay. And it's not the clay who does the work, it's the potter. Who are you, potter? Why'd you make me like that, right? Matthew 13.11 We get to finish on a real high note here, don't we? The high sovereignty of God and look at the privileges and benefits we have. In Matthew 13, you have parables after parables. And in 13.11, it says this. Jesus, um, the disciples saying, Hey, why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus answered, To you, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of, of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Whew. Is that pretty powerful? Some are granted that to understand the mysteries and others are not. He said, that's not fair. That's not fair that God would do that. And those are the ones that are believers that say it's not fair. This is not a world of fairness, is it? But it's good. God actually is this. And here's how you answer back to that. We're not talking about fairness here. If you want fairness, then we all go to hell. Nobody will go to heaven because they don't want to. They will not. They cannot, Romans 8 says. What's that mean? Well, if He can deliver me out of sin and deliver me into holiness, He can deliver me out of the worst things that can ever happen. And He can deliver me right into His arms if that be the case. He made the unregenerate regenerate. He made the dead to live. He made the unholy holy. He made the sinner a saint. He called us from sin to God, from dark to light. There's a total transformation. God is a holy, just God. We want to talk about fairness? He's a just God, and he could condemn, and he should have condemned everyone, everyone that was ever born in this human race. He should have condemned Adam and Eve, and never to have mankind again. But no, see the grace. It's amazing that he would just pick a son. It's amazing that he would pick. That literally, it turns out to be, who knows how many millions. And it could be billions that are going to be Christians joining Him for eternity. And it's not a, about fairness. Because fairness, look at us. What do we think we deserve? Uh, Ephesians 2, 1-3 through 3 explains that. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were under the very leadership of Satan himself. He was our commander. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It's the next book over after Timothy, the pastoral letters. Titus 3, verse 5, and boy, is this a great verse. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, and our deeds wasn't our righteousness, but according to His mercy. Mercy says, I'm going to take you out of your pitiful condition by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's all God's purpose. It's all God's plan. You were written down in His book because He chose you to believe in Him, not for anything that you were going to do. Didn't look down through the annals of time and said, oh, look, He's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose Him. Look how good He is. And then He affected your salvation whenever He came in time, space, and matter, the Holy Spirit, and He regenerates you and you say yes. It's irresistible grace. God's purpose and grace. There's no other way to be saved other than that. It's an undeserved forgiveness. That's what He requires. And it's Him who forgives our sins. You were written down in His book 
because He chose you to believe in Him and then He affected your salvation. He purposed all of this. You look in Ephesians 1, verse 4, all the way through 11, all the way through 13. You look at Romans 9, verse 11, verses 14 through 18, some of those we've been talking about. We are called by a holy calling. And I'm going to finish with this and uh, then we uh, are done with this message in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things, not just some, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called. That is the effectual calling. That means that's a, there's a general calling, that's to everybody. There's an effectual calling, that's for the ones who are the elect. According to His purpose, here we go, for those whom He foreknew, He had a relationship with He knew us before we were here. He also predestined us, predetermined us, to become what? Conformed to the image of His Son so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, predetermined, those ones He predestined before the foundation of the world, before you had anything to do with it, He also called. And that was in the 1900s or the, 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 the 2000s A.D. He also called. And these who He calls then, and this is past tense, I mean the work's been done. The ones He calls, He also justified. Declared righteous even though we weren't. And the ones who are justified, He also glorified. We haven't gotten to the glorified sense, but to God, that's as good as done. He's not bound by time. I don't understand it. I still wait for that. But I do know the ones who are justified are the ones who were called, and the ones who were called were predestined. You read it backwards. Did you see that? And the ones who were predestined were foreknown. We played our case.